0: Hello, welcome to yet another episode of The Search Space, the world's longest running and most leisurely paced podcast about logic programming. It's been almost two years since our last episode came out, but the podcast is still here and I'm very thankful to those of you who sometimes give me shoutouts to let me know that you're still interested. There is no shortage of fascinating topics to cover in logic programming, and I have absolutely no intention of closing down the podcast. One such topic is answer set programming, which we will be learning about in this episode, where I talk with Adam Smith. Adam is assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He is also someone with deep and unusual experience of building non-trivial systems using the answer set programming, or ASP paradigm. As Adam explains, ASP is a separate flavor of logic programming, its syntax is uh, similar to Prolog, but the semantics and execution model are quite different. Despite the big differences I would say the vision is still very similar, namely a type of programming that lets people express domain knowledge and problems in a natural yet precise form, and which encourages thinking in terms of relations and rules rather than commands or functions. Apart from ASP, Adam and I talk about related paradigms for constraint satisfaction or optimization, uh, the integration of symbolic reasoning with machine learning uh, or deep learning, and using rule-based systems in areas like game design. One really valuable aspect I think of the conversation is Adam's very hands-on descriptions of the kind of challenges he's run into when using ASP at scale and the various techniques and tricks he has learned along the way. As you will hear, he often challenges the simplistic understanding I have gained from just toying around with ASP on small examples. There are a fair amount of acronyms being bandied about in this episode. And although Adam explains them at various points, I would like now to quickly run through the most important ones just to provide a bit of a map of the territory. If you want to go straight to the conversation, just skip ahead a couple of minutes. So, again, ASP, answer, set, programming. The important part here, I think, is set. The idea is that programs don't have an input and an output, but rather they have an input and multiple outputs. Theoretically this is grounded in the way ASP handles negations, but it also makes for a programming experience that Adam compares to sculpture, where a lot of the work consists in taking away, in subtracting or pruning solutions from the answer set. Okay, next one. Kr, meaning knowledge representation. This is a central topic in classical AI concerned with capturing knowledge in a form that is easy for both humans and computers to understand and which can be used for reasoning. SAT is a class of solvers for Boolean satisfaction problems, so problems with a form, for example, X and Y or X and not C, just to take an example. The job of the solver um, is to assign values to the variables, X, Y, and c in this case, so that the specified formulas turn out true. And that is the execution of the program. SMT means SAT modular theories and adds to SAT other data types like integers, real numbers, lists, strings, with specialized techniques for handling each type. And finally, Datalog is an, uh, an important language in the logic programming family, which has been mentioned, I think, on the podcast before, and we will surely talk about it again in the future. Datalog is a database query language. You can think about it as a simplified version of Prolog or as a slightly more powerful sibling of SQL. Okay, enough with the buzzwords. Hopefully, in the following conversation, we will get a taste of the actual flavor of ASP programming. I'm your host, Felix Holmgren, and here's my guest, Adam Smith. So I'm here with Adam Smith. Adam, welcome to The Search Space. Ah, Hi, Felix. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, very nice to have you here. So we are going to be talking primarily about answer set programming here today. And uh, there are many different details we can get into, but would you just like to start? by giving some kind of characterization of answer set programming, either technical or just from the point of view of how you got interested in it?
1: Uh, I think I'll talk about like because there's a, a different story about how I got into it. Um but to me the the best way to explain what answer set programming is is sort of a a cryptic equation uh, that comes from uh Torsten Schaub at at Postum University. He says uh ASP is db plus lp plus kr plus smt to the n, and that probably doesn't mean a lot, especially when it comes out to your ears. Um, if, if you think of the, that other equation, algorithm equals logic plus control, it's a way of understanding like something in terms of the sum of its parts. So ASP being answer set programming has elements of um, maybe its syntax, you could say, is most related to logic programming traditions like prologue, But a lot of these other things in here, um, DB stood for databases, sort of relating it to how you might think of accessing a database using SQL, like structured query language or data log, as a way of querying it. And ASP sort of inherits semantics from that. KR referred to knowledge representation, because there's a lot of ideas in answer set programming, uh, such as non-monotonic reasoning, that had a lot of past work on them. and the last one, SMT, was a reference to satisfiability modulo theories or SAT solvers. Um, I kind of think of ASP, a really oversimplified version would be a, uh, a SAT solving engine with a prologue flavored modeling language added on top of it. That, that simplifies out a lot, but that to really understand all of it, there's all those pieces that, that pull into it. But overall, I'd say that. Answer set programming is kind of its own programming paradigm. Uh, like people are familiar with imperative programming, functional programming, object-oriented, and so on. And within the paradigm of logic programming, ASP is sort of its its own distinct family that uh, clashes with the Prolog style or even the Datalog style languages in its own way.
0: Right. It has this extremely declarative flavor. Um... And I mean, a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that most uh, ASP systems are, as you mentioned, implemented in terms or on top of a, a SAT solver, which means that you don't really have any, There, I mean, of course, something happens when you run it, but there isn't really any procedural interpretation as all, at all, like, like there is in Prolog. Um, you can't really, the whole point is that you can't really know what's happening in a procedural way. Uh, it's a complete black box.
1: I disagree with that a little bit in that there's, like the way I described ASP is a combination of a SAT-like solver and a prologue-like modeling language. At the solver level, um, when you're programming an ASP, you sort of don't get any visibility into which inferences are happening when. And I think that that's mm-hmm. a great strength of it. But at the the logical modeling language, I've actually found it pretty useful to think through the order in which rules Will get expanded. They don't get expanded in a completely deterministic order, um, but there, there's this idea of what's it called? Bottom-up evaluation, starting with the the logical facts that you give it. It applies the mm-hmm. inference rule to produce new facts, and you and sometimes if your rules are recursive, you can kind of think of those things as forming loops that process over time in order to build the SAP problem, which is then sort of executed in a purely declarative mode. So it's it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, Completely abstract, logical, um, and I don't think we would want something that that was uh, like 100%. Didn't give you any way of reasoning about how it was executing over time. And this comes up when you want to use ASP for applications that are not like a, a toy textbook example, some real world thing. You want to be able to do debugging, uh, profiling for improving the performance or controlling the memory usage, and uh, having some intuitive or sorry imperative understanding. Intuitive understanding of the imperative aspects <laughs> uh, does play into that when you do sort of at scale uh, industrial applications.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, but, but I mean, I, I know there are some implement- some more recent implementations of ASP as well that that have a, like a runtime or a, a interpreter that's more similar to Prolog. But but the most commonly used ones, they start by reducing the the whole program into a basically a SAT formula, right? So It's, it's that- very much like that.
1: But I'd say that mm-hmm. in, a, in a practical application, the execution time of your program might maybe spend 50% of that time in the problem construction phase, and then maybe 50% of the time in the solving phase. Right. Um, so even though the the solving phase is the one that has this like worst case exponential time thing, it's like theoretically the scary part. Uh, in practice, you, you can't disregard the the problem construction time. Um, which is usually polynomial, but um, pretty heavy polynomials depending on what you've modeled.
0: Right. I mean, I've only toyed around with it, so I've never run into that problem. But I understand uh, that this happens in practice, that uh, during the the grounding phase, that's what you're calling? Yeah, the exactly.
1: Thing? The, the yep. grounding phase, sort of reducing the first-order logic modeling language to a bunch of propositions that the solver understands.
0: Right, that you can run into really um, exponential explosion in execution time at that stage Uh,
1: it's it's not so much that it's exponential explosion but it might be that um the problem you're modeling inherently involves uh relations between not just all pairs but maybe all triples of objects in your domain so in something we might actually talk about a little bit later um Mm -hmm. the this refraction game that i had made a puzzle generator for uh One of the mechanics in this game is that a laser could shoot out of one piece and hit another piece to transfer power to it, but that would only happen if there wasn't a third interposing piece that would block the laser. So this inherently involved reasoning about triples of puzzle pieces at a time. And if we maybe had 20 puzzle pieces, it would be 20 cubed interactions to consider. Um, So in that case, it wasn't an exponential blowup, it was just a cubic blowup. But that became one of the limiting factors in how complex of a puzzle that we can model.
0: Hmm. Okay. Maybe since we already mentioned SAT solvers several times, uh, although that's not the main topic here, that's something we haven't actually talked about on this podcast at all before. Would you like to just give a brief introduction to what those things are?
1: Sure. Um, SAT solvers, SAT being short for uh, satisfiability or Boolean satisfiability, Um, people might think of it as CSP or constraint satisfaction problems defined over Boolean variables. Imagine uh, out in front of you a very large uh, number of switches that can either be on or off, and um, that defines your search space. So if you have 64 switches in front of you, you can express you know, 18 quintillion combinations. Um, and then in this metaphor of the switches, the constraints you put on those are a bit like uh, little circuits you add to those switches that have lights attached to them, and your goal is maybe to flip the switches uh, in a way that all the lights turn green. Um, And different instances of the problem are defined by different configurations of the wires attached to it. So you can easily set up absurdly large search spaces just, you know, with 64 switches or 64 boolean variables. There's 18 quintillion operations. Um, But if I had this in front of you, you might be able to do some reasoning through, oh, this wire is connected to this switch, so this one has to be off when this one is on. Uh, There can actually be a lot of intelligence used in the search process to very quickly get this thing into uh, a satisfying state where none of the constraints are violated, maybe all the the lights are green. Um, So uh, the solvers don't just try to flip switches and try to minimize the number of errors. They'll do some analysis of the constraints to reason through these very, very large spaces to hopefully, with relatively few steps, uh, get to an an all-satisfied state.
0: Right. Well, that was really nice. Um, And also, this is a very active area of research, right, Uh, both academically and industrially. And I think one of the points you have been making is that the fact that Many ASP solvers are implemented over a, uh, by reducing them to a SAT problem means that uh, we get to benefit from all this progress that is kind of steadily being made in SAT solvers.
1: Yeah, I might modify that to say that I think some of the earliest answer set programming systems really did work via reduction to SAT. And to my knowledge, the sort of current generation tools have their own dedicated solvers that are specific to answer set programming. But architecturally, they are so similar to SAT solving that when a new idea comes out in the the literature for SAT solving, it's not a new research project to to translate that idea into ASP. You just make a change to the solver to to implement the idea. Um, New solvers could be implemented via reduction to SAT, although there are a few special rules that benefit from having a solver that understands ASP directly rather than only through reduction to SAT. Um, and this hmm. comes up in um, ASP as it's usually defined can actually express problems outside of the complexity class NP. So you can write answer set problems that can't, or via the reduction approach, can't be solved without an exponential call number of calls to the internal SAT solver. But if you have uh an ASP solver that that knows it's going to be used for for ASP, it can sort of reason about that type of constraint internally.
0: Mm-hmm. So it becomes feasible to reason about other classes or problems that couldn't uh, pr- run in practice on a SAT-based system.
1: Uh, well, it's not that they couldn't run in practice, but you would have to add some loop to call the solver many many times in a in the inner loop. Sometimes people call this like uh, counterexample-guided search where. You don't give the solver the entire problem. You just give it an interesting core of the problem and say, is this satisfiable? Uh, If so, we're good. If not, I'll use your counterexample to figure out which additional constraint I need to explain to the solver. Um, And this is useful for solving problems that are of the form. Suppose there's some proposition, uh, I don't know, let's just call it proposition uh, P. You want to say there exists an assignment of some Boolean variables such that for all, assignment of other Boolean variables, P of all those variables is is true. So it's got two layers of quantification, exists and for all. SAT solvers mm-hmm. are usually focused on the just one layer, the exists or just for all. Um, but when you stack them together, you're outside of NP, and either you need to roll your own solver or work with a solver that can express things on the on that second level.
0: Well, while we're talking about solvers, you mentioned SMT also as a sort of a sibling, paradigm uh, or, or something that you could compare ASP to, Satisfiability Modulo Theories, Ex- right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it seems to me those things are kind of, it seems they are well-known in quite different communities. Like SMT is used for quite different things than ASP from what I've seen.
1: The, that is true. And I, it's actually a little bit um, unfortunate because i found there's times when I read a paper where somebody implemented something with an SMT solver. I imagine, oh, if I was gonna make this in, in with answer set programming, I might be able to make it in 100 lines of code or at least the, the core of it because inside of many answer set solvers is a core SAT solver plus the ability to plug in additional theory specific solvers. And in fact, usually that's the main difference between a SAT solver and an ASP solver is sort of like SAT solver plus some ASP-specific theories plugged into it. A a common place where people might want an SMT solver is that if the domain you're reasoning about has some discrete elements that might be good for a SAT solver, things that are yes or no, but also Mm -hmm. a bunch of uh, numerical elements like that are best modeled by real numbers, Um, if you want to reason about real numbers inside of a SAT solver, you might have to like, say, oh, let's model it as like 16 bit integers, you have to pick some level of resolution and reduce it down to raw bits. Whereas a solver that had a dedicated component for reasoning about constraints on real numbers that had like worked with a different set of axioms, that system might be able to much more efficiently handle this mixed domain that has discrete and continuous elements to it.
0: Right, and that's the idea behind SMT, right? That the theories could be a theory of lists, one of reels, one of, uh, I'm not sure, trees perhaps, or yeah, and yeah. that you can use them all uh, uh, in the same program.
1: And what's sort of exciting about the, the current generation of ASP tools, and when I say current generation, I'm, I'm referring to the, like, the Potasco tools from University of Potsdam. Usually you see them referenced by the name Klingo or Clasp is that um, if you decide that the domain you're modeling needs a domain-specific theory, you can write your domain-specific theory in the same file as the rest of your purely declarative logic code in a block of, say, Python code or Lua code. You don't actually have to even switch to C++ to extend the solver in this way.
0: Okay, so I think the first time I encountered your work was in a book called uh, Procedural Content Generation in Games that came out what like 7 8 years ago i'm not sure 6 i don't um, remember that the exact year had, but yeah yeah we it's had a on, chapter it's online yeah and you, right you had one chapter there together with a colleague uh, using asp to generate mazes and or or game levels and um well so just to to explain what procedural content generation is is basically where you have content that is not pre handcrafted or stored it doesn't come with the game. It's something that you create dynamically, and um, or I guess you could create it dynamically and then save it. But anyway, there is some program involved in the content creation, and i um, probably most people think of at least that's my sense more stochastic approaches uh, when it comes to content generation. So I'm not sure if you have any had any reactions to this or if I'm just wrong, but maybe it's a slightly unexpected to have a purely logic-based paradigm in there?
1: Oh, uh, well, what you said was, was all right. And um, I happen to be teaching a, an undergraduate course on generative design mm. slash procedural content generation this quarter, so it's very much on my mind. Like, many people mm. associate procedural content generation with, oh, that's code that uses a random number generator to generate game content. And to my mind, the important part isn't that it uses a random number generator. For example, like the ASP solvers or SAT solvers or SMT solvers could internally use random number generators, uh, and sometimes they do. Uh, when all their, when no other specific heuristic applies, they might make a choice randomly. Um, and I think of ASP as a kind of non-deterministic programming, or uh, almost a underdetermined. Programming in the sense that you are specifying a space of possible outputs, but you're not specifying a way to choose which one is going to come out first. So it lets you, if you were writing in a language like Python or Lua or C, you would have to say exactly what happens when. And sometimes you don't know what happens when. And one way to model that is to say, well, I'll ask a random number generation library what I should do next. If you were doing that declaratively, you could say, not. I will do what the random number generator says but i will do anything in this list or anything in this set Um, but they both express the idea that there are some details that i care about um, and other ones that i want some other system to determine for me either through random numbers or generate and test or constraint propagation
0: and i guess together with that is also the fact that you can get if you're program is underspecified, you can, that means you can get many examples of what you have been asking for. You can get multiple game levels or multiple examples of whatever it is you're modeling.
1: Certainly. Uh, Although um, usually having many, many levels is not nearly as important as having just a few that are sort of meaningfully distinct. Um, Mm. So there's this idea due to um, Kate Compton, who's done a lot of procedural content generation stuff of the 10,000 bowls of oatmeal problem. In the sense of, suppose you are making some sort of program, whether it's expressed declaratively or imperatively, that generates bowls of oatmeal that have uh, the grains of oatmeal at different orientations, at slightly different XYZ positions. Um, and somebody says, oh, I made 10,000 bowls of oatmeal, and I promise you all, each oat grain is different in every single one of these things, but to everyone else looking at it... <laughs> They're all the same versus one where maybe the oats are on the table or they spell out something or they form a castle or something like that, that just because you have 10,000 and that they were all like entirely distinct in every possible detail doesn't mean that they've actually felt distinct. Um, so in that sense, going for, for quantity is not quite enough as sort of perceptual variation. And uh, we've come, up across, come across that in using ASP for content generation in that when we're making, say... Puzzles for an educational game. Each player is only going to see a few levels. E- an individual player doesn't appreciate that there's ten thousand or something like that. Uh, but they want to know that the ten levels that they saw didn't just feel like, oh, this one is a ninety-degree rotation of the one you just played. Um, hmm. And so we actually modeled that in ASP uh, as as a hard constraint that um, each puzzle that comes out of our puzzle generator must be distinct at the level of How should I describe this? Um, um, It was a game played on a grid where there are pieces at XY locations. And we didn't want it that if you just take all the pieces and move them one step to the right, that would be considered different, because that wouldn't really feel different. So we formed uh, a graph of the pieces. When one piece sent a laser beam to another piece, we said there's a graph edge. And we said that uh, different levels had to have different graphs. Uh, Which meant you could move and rotate the level all you wanted, but until you either broke an edge, added an edge, added a new piece that participated in the graph, it didn't count as a new uh, thing. So that was sort of us declaratively specifying what it meant to be perceptually different Then we modeled perception as just sort of the graph view of it.
0: Mm. So maybe here we come to your, your term of, is it sculptural programming? Oh uh, yeah. That Chris uh, Martins mentioned here on the podcast.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I have a precise term for it, but just the idea of when you're modeling uh, a 3D object in sculpture, there're sort of two processes you can do. One is uh subtractive, and you might think of the sculptor starting with a huge block of of marble and chiseling out everything that that is not part of their final composition. That would be purely subtractive uh, synthesis of of a 3D form. Um, And a different model of sculpture is more that you might work with uh, building a loose form for your sculpture out of chicken wire and putting paper mache on that and adding clay and sort of adding out support and struts and arms for a shape to which you then sculpt fine details subtractively. So there's both additive and subtractive things that you wanna do in in 3D -hmm. modeling uh, in the the sculpture space. And the metaphor for that in ASP is that each line of code that you write in ASP tends to be working either additively or subtractively. A subtractive action might be like adding a constraint to say um, of all the possibilities that used to come out of the solver, I want to remove 10% of them that had this certain flaw that I want to get rid of. So that would be a subtractive design move, whereas an additive design move might be adding another choice rule that gives the solver additional degrees of freedom to make distinctions between its different solutions. Um, And probably, whenever I give it more possibilities, I want to pair that with some subtractive rules or constraints that say, only use this additional expressiveness in ways that are coherent with the rest of the, of the design, or the, the rest of the problem I'm, I'm modeling.
0: Right. So I, I guess I th- was mostly associating to the subtractive part when I was thinking about this term, sculptural, uh, and, and thinking about this oatmeal example. There would be a case where you simply have to cut away bigger parts of the search space, uh, subtracting from the possibilities? Because you get, sure, they are all different, but they are too similar. So you have to, as you just explained, introduce some actual interesting criteria. But but you seem to be talking much more of a balance between the additive and subtractive.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in that, uh, or some something else that counts as additive would be when you add additional rules to infer a sort of abstracted view of it. So from this puzzle game that was played on a grid, I would add more rules to infer a sort of abstracted graph view of it. That was sort of a simple abstraction of it. And then I would add uh-huh. abstractions on the graph view of it. Um, right. But the, the steps for me to construct the graph view from the grid view was, I guess that wasn't increasing the number of solutions. So it wasn't really additive, but it was sort of building out support for future constraints mm. or future additive stuff. So I think, Metaphorically, it's still on the additive end in in my (laughs) understanding of that kind of structure.
0: I I think there is a pretty common uh, way of structuring or teaching ASP programming in three phases, which is generate, define, and test. I don't know if that's something that you use. um,
1: But Uh, I have some comments on
0: that one, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I will just say in that model, then I guess um, creating those rules to constr- to produce an another view or an abstract view on the problem would uh, qualify as the define face, I suppose. Out of these, no. Uh, yes, define out of these three. But let's hear what you think. Sure. Uh, I I think
1: so. The generate define test is usually. Uh, a suggestion to put all of your choice rules, which are the ones that are the source of non-determinism in your program, put those at, Mm -hmm. say, at the top of your program, and then in the middle of your program, write all your prologue-style deductive rules that sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, or they're almost more like data log in that case, uh, that compute properties of the guest configuration on the top half of your program. And then at the bottom of your program, you probably have a few constraints that says, based on all the properties I've detected, some of those properties must be required and some of them must be forbidden. Usually the, the, the constraint part is relatively small. The trouble with this view is that, uh, or imagine going back to modeling with clay, you could tell students first add all the clay you're ever going to need into a big Mm -hmm. lump in the center of your studio, then start removing things like do all your additions before all your subtractions and that that uh, design flow only works up to a sort of a certain level of complexity in a project. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in the projects that I've done that have actually gotten more complicated, usually they don't have more than 200 lines of code in ASP, um, but they are broken down into reusable modules that can be tested separately. And in particular, I almost all the tests apply to the deductive rules or the, the defined section. So I try to make it so that those can run without an associated uh, guess or, or, or generate part of it for testing purposes. Um, it, it's sort of mm-hmm. like in the in the textbooks introducing ASP, they don't introduce you to sort of at-scale industrial applications. So they offer you the sort of simple students' view of do this, then this, then this. And it's like no surprise that in the real world, it's it's more complicated. Um, But I think so few people are doing work at that scale that there's a lot of conventions that I got from how I used ASP that I've tried to communicate to people through email. Um, But I've never actually written a paper or even a a document down with many of these design guidelines.
0: Um, Oh, we would really appreciate that if it came out. Uh, I'm sure I would, and uh, probably a lot of other people. Yeah. So I, I guess the picture I had in mind, um, as just as you describe, is more something like having a big slab of marble, and then just chiseling, uh, which is easy it it has a certain purity and it's uh, easy to understand. But maybe we could talk a little bit more concretely about if you would talk a little bit about that chapter in the procedural content generation book. Or if you prefer to talk about the other uh, level design project Um, you did. I'll try to talk about
1: the the refraction game, because that one's more sort of anchored in the real world and goes with my kind of philosophy of trying to do research that is always somehow anchored in the real world. Not because the real world problems are necessarily the most important, but always having sort of one foot uh, anchored there is an interesting constraint on how to do work. So... uh, as an example of additive and subtractive there would be that we have a few rules that, that um, first guess how many pieces there should be in a puzzle. So we have a choice rule that maybe says, okay, there's going to be between five and 40 pieces. And then we might have a rule that says, okay, if a piece is active in this design, what type of piece should it be? And the different pieces might be a source of lasers, they might be a consumer of lasers or something that splits or bends lasers. Uh, then there would be another segment of code that says, okay, for each active piece, what is its X, Y position on the grid? Uh, and then I might add some constraints at that stage to say, once pieces have an X, Y position on grid, I can immediately detect simple collisions between them. Like, um, two pieces can't have the same X and Y coordinate at the same time or else they're overlapping. So even though I haven't modeled every aspect of the pieces, such as their orientation or, which side their inputs and output ports are on, I can already apply some constraints to keep the pieces from overlapping or to make sure that they are on the board or possibly that there's not too many pieces in the bottom half of the board if I want some sort of spatial balance or symmetry. Um, And then going deeper and deeper in that program, there are things that might say, okay, for a laser source, I need to choose what its laser power is going to be. Um this refraction game I keep mentioning was an educational game meant to introduce students to reasoning with fractions, so it might put out a power of one over one that when split becomes power one half one over two, and then combining lasers was adding fractions if they had a common denominator and so on
0: and Could you say something i mean i I know it's hard to just do it without being able to show anything but just a little bit about the actual affordances that ASP gives you to model these things that you just explained? Uh, Sure.
1: So um, when I talk about um, putting pieces on a board, uh, you have to imagine I'm looking at some text editor with prologue-like code on the screen. There's no two-dimensional graphics built into this uh, language. If you want visualization, you have to build those tools yourself. So for example, how to express this in in terms of a bunch of Boolean properties that solvers understand. when I say that, for example, there's between 15 and 20 pieces, there'll be a proposition that says there were five pieces, there were six, there were seven pieces. Each one of those is a true or false proposition in the the world that I'm modeling. Um, And then when I say each piece has an X and Y position, um, really, you can think of that as a bunch of Boolean predicates, such as piece number five had a say, 8-bit number representing its position and bit 3 was either on or off. Um, So I can reason about the position of um, points in a very large space, if I represent these in in binary, by sort of modeling whether each bit was on or off. And um, then if I want to express the idea idea that two numbers are the same, well they're the same if all their bits are the same. Um, And luckily I didn't have the model multiplication in there. Um, if I did, I might need to instantiate a a little uh, multiplier circuit. And I had another project that touched on that where it was actually best to write the mathematical parts of of the project in uh, Verilog, like a a hardware description language, which would then output a circuit that I would then reason about in ASP.
0: Hmm. But so those things you're describing right now, uh, so for example, the number of the occurrences of something, that's something that you have some special syntax for in
1: ASP. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, when people are thinking of SAT solving, they're thinking of all the constraints you can write down are just simple conjunctions of terms or their negations. Um, but in ASP, there are higher level things such as saying, um, how many items in this set or is the cardinality of this set greater than or equal to a certain threshold? Um, right. So there, there is modeling of in ASP, we we just call them um, aggregates, and there's a couple different aggregation operations, such as like weighted sums uh, and counts, which I guess is a special case of weighted sum.
0: My sense or my experience of ASP is that it's one thing that is nice. It's it's there are quite few number of constructs that you can use. It's quite easy to learn the basics, um, but. It's also quite easy to express some of the most common things that you typically want to for example that there can never be uh, an instance of you know a certain combination of two bricks or whatever being in the same location. it's quite easy to express those kind of things and at the same time it has this um, I guess flavor of logic as opposed to some constraint systems that are more... I'm not even sure I want to say mathematical. I don't know. It just, ha- they have a more computer feel. Uh, ASP to me it, uh, represents this interesting sweet
1: spot in the place of complexity of the language. And like, if I compare it to a tool like MiniZinc that might be used for CSP style modeling, the language of Zinc is syntactically more complex. It has like, Comp- more complicated data structures. Uh, there's a very large library of global constraints that you have to read the documentations for. Uh, but some of those let you model the hardest part of your problem in one step if you've fully familiarized yourself with the giant library of global constraints. Whereas on the other end, something like in SAT solving, that there's, you know, there's o- only two primitives. There's decision variables and conjunctive constraints, and and that's it. Um, and whereas ASP is a bit in between that they're, there's a small number of constructs that you need to learn um, with which you can model many other global constraints through a constraint decomposition approach. And there have been times when I know that something might most efficiently be solved by like a dedicated CSP solver, but I've decided to model it in ASP just because I knew I could be done with a project in the next 10 minutes without consulting any other documentation because I've mastered the relatively small set of primitives that, that ASP offers. And if I needed something outside of that, I'd actually have to do some like empirical profiling to figure out like what is what part of this thing is actually slow. And it might be that something needs to be pre-computed or something needs to be factored out as a domain-specific solver. And if either of those are the case, I don't need to leave ASP. Um, I can express a lot of pre-processing or in-processing type operations uh, in say Python, if I need to, by slightly extending the core, uh, still inside of my my .lp file, um, just adding maybe twenty more lines of, of Python in there, if needed.
0: Okay. Would you talk? Would you like to talk a little bit about um, your more recent work, as I understand it, in using ASP for encoding design knowledge? Uh, yeah. Uh,
1: well, there's there's two aspects of it. the The general idea of using ASB to model a design space. And the idea is like uh, when people refer to procedural content generation, for example, for game content, they, they emphasize making a program that outputs the, the game content. They Their focus is on a program rather than modeling the space of acceptable content. So this paradigm of using ASB to model a design space uh, with some collaborators at University of Washington, we modeled a design space of Information visualizations. Think of line plots and scatter plots and bar charts and stuff like that. So, um, me and all the other uh, uh, collaborators managed to, in a, in a relatively small, AS, uh, answer set program, write down a lot of heuristics about how, like, if you have a certain kind of data, this type of data is best uh, visualized by a bar chart or a scatter plot. And we could we could model those with different levels of priority that, oh, if there's a more specific case that applies, that rule will override another one. Uh, so we were able to write down a bunch of heuristic knowledge um, in, in ASP directly. And uh, sort of to model the remainder of our preferences as to what makes a good visualization. There was an existing data set, I believe, of a data set of data sets and an expert uh, visualization. Person's judgment as what is the best way to visualize it, and we were able to put that through a machine learning system. I believe it was just as simple as like logistic regression or something, to learn sort of a preference score, um, and then we could take that preference score that we learned via a, a pile of Python code using the scikit-learn library, and that the the weights in that formula became the weights of terms in an optimization statement in further ASP code. So given the description of a data set to be visualized, our design space model could could give you samples from the space of all sort of feasible visualizations, as well as rank them or even generate the optimal or something tied for being optimal for the, the best way to visualize it through a combination of expert coded heuristics and expert preferences distilled down um, to a preference score via machine learning. So I liked that that one, in the end, it was purely declarative. But we didn't write all the rules ourselves. Uh, some of it was distilled from big piles of data with machine learning.
0: So you could actually use the weights inside the ASP program? Yeah.
1: Uh, ASP has a notion of soft constraints, which is like a constraint that's OK to be violated, but each time you violate it, it costs a certain amount of damage or badness points. Um, so it, it can express uh, a weighted combination of terms to say, OK, I have a, a bunch of weak constraints, and it's not possible to jointly satisfy all of them. But it's better to, to break 10 instances of this constraint than it is to, ex- to, to break two instances of, of another one to say that some constraints are, are more rigid than other ones. And there's often a score associated with violating a given constraint. And we set it up so that those those scores were directly associated with the terms outputted by the machine learning system.
0: Hmm. So, So could you just give an example of what the actual input and output of the system is? Oh, in that case, the input to the system
1: was a description of some data. For example, you'd say, okay, I have a, maybe I have a spreadsheet that has three columns Um, Three columns and 100 rows, and the first column was numbers ranging from zero to 1,000. The second column was a bunch of Boolean data, just true or false. And the third column was like discrete strings uh, describing three different classes of whatever the data was describing. Uh, You can imagine something, maybe it's modeling the last 100 days of weather, and one of the columns is saying, what is the temperature? Another one is modeling, did it rain or not? Just Boolean. And the third one was, uh, I don't know what discrete property of the, of, of the weather would be. Uh, maybe it could be a property of the society inside of it. Like, was it a weekend or not? And does that affect right. how their behavior was? Um, so a description of the data set would go in. And the output or different solutions to this constraint problem would be, descriptions of different data visualizations. So it might say, you should make a scatter plot where the x-axis came from the position dimension and the y-axis was the amount of, that, that, that would actually be a, a horrible scatter plot. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe for, particular for this weather data, it would be best described as um, multiple one-dimensional scatter plots, one per... Um, whether it ran or not or whatever the discrete element was so they were oh. descriptions of of data visualizations that could then be handed off to the data visualization engine to actually render those at the pixel level
0: so this sounds uh, to me a little bit like classical knowledge representation which you mentioned at the outset as one of the uh, in that large formula one of the components mm-hmm. of to understand ASP like you' you encoded some expert, domain knowledge about visualization. In the end, of course, you generate something, you output something, but uh, the flavor is more of knowledge representation rather than procedural generation or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, uh, well, to think of that same project from a combinatorial search perspective, it's not that there were too many options for us to enumerate, like the search spaces involved weren't astronomically large. Um, we really cared about ASP from a can we write code that makes sense to us? Like maybe we could have made a a, a program that was almost as efficient that just had a, a, a for loop that looped over all possible visualizations and ran some sort of preference score on them. That would have been maybe from the outside, the user couldn't tell whether it was implemented one way or the other one, but implementing it in the more declarative flavor made it easier from a debugging perspective to be like what knowledge have we given the system how do we add more um or we can even do things such as if our current model is wrong somehow like if the expert chosen ideal way to visualize something was actually disallowed by our rules um we can actually have the solver solve for what is the smallest set of constraints to remove to make that output visible again uh so in that sense it's the solver is being enlisted to help us with knowledge engineering.
0: Yeah. Could you describe how that last point, what kind of tweak do you need to do or how do you need to run it to get that?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, So we would take the um, existing answer set program and then we would make an additive modeling change to say, for every one of our expert encoded rules, we're going to have a Boolean decision variable that says, should this rule be enforced or not? And then we will add constraints that, okay, we know what the input was, we know what the output be, and we want it to be satisfiable. But then you might have the problem of, oh, I know how to make it satisfiable, just disable all the rules, because then anything goes. Right. Uh, but then we also have to model, this is a use case for weak constraints, that I want it to be that every rule is enforced, but there's a small penalty for removing some rules, or maybe some rules are more foundational than other ones. So it's yeah. more important that try, try to find a, like, think of it as commenting out bits of your code. And uh, some of your code, you're like, this is the core of it. Please don't touch this unless you really need to. Um, and it will figure out sort of which lines need to be commented out in, via combinatorial uh, search with some strong preferences there to say that um, I don't want you to just comment out all the code. I would like it to ideally be one line. And of the one line changes, I prefer it to be in this section of the code rather than that one.
0: Hmm. So you bake that right into the. To the program that any rule can be disabled but it has a a big penalty i suppose
1: uh yeah or 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 rather it's that i can't remember exactly which language we were modeling our expert knowledge in it might or may not actually have been asp we might have been generating the answer set program from another representation Uh It maybe it was xml json or something that the rest of the system needed to understand In in fact in almost all of my kind of real world applications with asp some large chunk of the answer set program is generated on the fly uh, just like converted from one form to another from some other data in the domain um, in that in a sense that the, the answer set program is assembled from fragments that are just concatenated together in a different way
0: uh, but are those fragments uh, in the asp syntax or or in some Yeah, different. Uh, I'd say
1: usually the rules, like the the most important deductive rules and constraints are usually written in ASP syntax and they're run through my unit testing framework that way. The part that's most often generated is just the raw facts describing a problem instance, Mm -hmm. but there have been times when I generated rules as well. And that was usually when I wanted to do some sort of, um, uh, I guess it's a logic programming tradition, uh, making a meta interpreter, Um, that reasons over the rules, but reasons over the rules in a slightly different way.
0: Right. Okay. So I just, oh, I'd like to mention here also, there is a library, a Python library called Clorm, C-L-O-R-M, that is sort of like similar to an object relational mapper for a database, for a relational database, but for the Potasco tools so that you can define your problem instances with uh, Python objects. Yeah, yeah. Send them off. And it's a, I just think it's a, I experimented with it a little bit. I think it's a nice, yeah, it, it makes uh, ASP a little bit more approachable. Uh, so I'd say,
1: like, like I, I've experienced working with, with that type of ab- abstraction or the model where you write code that outputs ASP files and those are run on the command line that usually I suggest for people who are trying to wrap their mind around this kind of for most people, a very unfamiliar programming paradigm Uh to not use those abstraction libraries to sort of stay in pure ASP for as long as you can and then pick up those tools when it's time to operationalize your your system to plug it into the rest of the real world. But I think writing things in in pure ASP files and running them on the command line gives a different intuition about how things work and how long they take to execute. um, That kind of gets hidden when you have the libraries do everything for you.
0: In this case, I mean, you write all the rules in plain ASP. It's only for the facts mm-hmm. that you can use this wrapper. But but anyway, that, that sounds like sound advice. So I'd like to go back to this point you talked about that this was not necessarily such a complex problem. And uh, I guess maybe constraint programming in general and ASP uh, is often even presented as a great tool for uh, NP-hard problems, But I think it's really interesting to, regardless of the complexity of the problem, just the expressiveness of the language and, um, I guess I would say, modularity. Not exactly the way that we think about modularity, maybe, as actual modules in other languages. But the fact that uh, rules and sets of rules can be quite independent of each other and composed in different ways. I would just like to hear more about that aspect of solving perhaps not such complex problems, but problems where, uh, like in a business context, you often have to change rules back and forth. Uh, People change their minds, or new data or new understandings come in, which is where traditional rules engines uh, come into the picture. And it sounds to me like this project was something that maybe a few decades ago, a rules engine would have been the First choice, and here you have a different set of um, affordances
1: yeah uh, there is a sense in which it is i mean architecturally internally it's different than than a rules engine, but it is a system in, primarily implemented by defining rules um, on the the note of of Np hard and so on, like in uh, I keep going back to the refraction example because this was a game played on a ten by ten grid. Even though maybe the gameplay could be defined on an n by n grid, realistically we only ever wanted it to ever be done at 10 by 10. So there was there was no sense in which this was a theoretically hard problem. It was it was totally defined at a fixed scale. Um, however, at that scale, the kind of constraints we wanted to express about it involved kind of the flavor of constraints that that aren't in, in NP or that wouldn't easily be reduced to a, a SAT solver. Um, the concrete thing being, we would say, uh, okay, solver, please show me that there, uh, when you generate a level, that there ex- exists at least one solution to it. I want the puzzle to come with like a proof that it was solvable so that there's a chance the player can do it. So I want to say, uh, give me a puzzle such that there exists a solution. Uh, and further, for all alternative configurations of pieces, if that alternative configuration of pieces solves the puzzle, like if it's a valid different solution, it had better also practice some concept that I want the player to see. Um, So uh, this was where the most natural way to express our requirements came down to a exists for all property. Um, That would normally be something that you would have to have uh, like a QBF, that's a quantified Boolean formulas solver to express these problems that involve two levels of quantification. Um, And this also comes up if you want to model, say, a a program synthesis problem where to say, um, I want to say there exists a program such that for all inputs, the output of the generated program on that input agrees with the specification. So there's lots of natural problem settings that their easiest way of stating them involves an exists-for-all thing. But if all you have is a SAT solver, one of those quantifiers must be pushed into code outside of the solver. Um, But this was all to say that in refraction, our thing theoretically was actually harder than anything uh, in NP, uh, but we only ever faced it at a human scale of a 10 by 10 grid. So it was reasonable for us to run the solver and and get solutions pretty quickly, uh, despite the fact that this thing was theoretically an extremely scary problem.
0: So just to give an idea, I mean, what, what kind of durations are we talking about? Oh, um, it's like
1: generating a pu- generating one puzzle given a specification for the educational goals of the thing might have been one second. And to back up this idea, we made a design tool for puzzle progressions that would let you paint in constraint, high-level constraints on which uh, educational concepts you wanted to have seen in different parts of the game um, and it would fill in a level design for you. But it would also let you go into those generated level designs and move a piece, say, one step to the left. And then it would check that your modified version still met the original constraint that that level was supposed to have. Um, And if it didn't meet that constraint, uh, you could say, no, this was on purpose. Please change the rest of the levels to fit my manual change. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was an interactive tool where like, when you picked up something and put it down with your mouse, as soon as you hit Save, you wanted to know pretty quickly what the results were, uh, so there was pressure to have the system be responsive. Maybe not within 100 milliseconds, but I think about one second or something was was the sort of reaction latency f- uh, for those things.
0: Huh? Yeah, I mean, this I think that this is a very interesting um, application area and, or problem area. I, I heard someone talk about uh, using Linear constraint solver to pack containers on container ships, not only to place them, but you know to take into account which ports would be visited first, which ones would have to be unloaded first, and so forth. And um, he he mentioned that one big problem they had was that the solutions that the system came up with was too good, or they were too in human so that the people who were using it didn't trust it they <laughs> yeah. so they had to reprogram it to make uh, solutions that were simpler for a human to understand so i, I think this is an interface that's really interesting like uh, h- how systems like this should will um, combine with human effort
1: yeah and, and i think this is actually again one of the strengths of asp the idea of it I guess in in knowledge representation terms, there's the concept of elaboration tolerance, that when someone gives you some clarification about how your domain works, can you incorporate that change by just adding more code to add more choices or more constraints, or do you have to re-engineer the core of your system? And and the claim historically has been that ASP has been elaboration tolerant, and I'll say it's tolerant to some uh, elaborations and not other ones, of course, But in the case of making a human interpretable plan, one aspect of that is visualize it so they can actually see what the output of the machine is. And another one is to model some aspects of human perception in the answer set program so that it doesn't generate the optimal plan, it generates the optimal one that is perceptually simple, uh, according to Mm -hmm. some perceptual simplicity score that might be modeled as additional uh, deductive rules. And in that case, you could say, well, it really is optimal under this constraint that it only go through a certain number of discrete phases, for example, or that um, you do all of one operation before another one. And I think uh, in ASP, there might be problems that the core of the problem is easy to reduce to SAT or is easy to reduce to integer linear programming. But then when you go to deploy it, you find out all these other side constraints. And it might be that Finding the optimal score according to all the side constraints is actually a vastly more complicated problem than solving the underlying combinatorial optimization of what you thought the core was. And that's why it's important to have a flexible enough system so that even if your problem looked like it lived in NP to start, that you can handle throwing on another layer of quantification uh, on the outside.
0: Hmm. So this elaboration tolerance you talk about is that related to the to non-monotonic reasoning?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very related. Of- I think the the I, the term elaboration tolerance is older. Non-monotonic reasoning, uh, I feel like I used to know much more about that, but I've become sort of out of touch with the uh, the logic programming literature in the last few years. Uh, <laughs> my my research lab has much more picked up uh, deep learning techniques recently because I think that at least Mm -hmm. in the year 2021, a lot of important knowledge is now being distilled from data into sub-symbolic forms using deep learning style techniques. And we kind of need to figure out how to merge. Maybe people have been saying this for decades, but yeah, we need to combine neural approaches with logical and statistical approaches uh, because no one paradigm can account for all these things. And certain parts of systems are most obviously expressed in certain in certain modes. So like in the visualization project, it felt very comfortable to have part of our thing be directly encoded symbolic knowledge and another part of it being distilled uh, via simple linear models style machine learning. And I think in the future, there's going to be things like what's the phrase? Uh learning discrete neural representations or vector symbolic algebras. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry, vector mm-hmm. symbolic architectures that sort of kind of provide a bridge between these worlds, so that we that some of our knowledge can be distilled from data in a sub-symbolic mode, but still be used inside of our symbolic things where we actually want line by line debuggability and and explainability.
0: Yeah. Um, so maybe we could approach this from. Do you have any application in mind, like that is in line with your other work that we have been talking about, just to make it a little bit more concrete? Uh, yeah. So a
1: very concrete thing would be that um, uh, I, for example, maybe want to generate pixel level, photorealistic details for a game level design that's going to fit a certain predefined art aesthetic. Maybe I have an artist who has already made a few levels for my game in one style, but I want to generate more levels in that style. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't want them to just look like that. There's a lot of uh, research in computer vision or computer vision going into graphics of generating more images that look like other ones, and they might use generative adversarial networks. And I'd say those are doing it from a sort of purely sub-symbolic approach. They'll make something that looks like those other ones, but it might be missing core semantics of those images for gameplay purposes. Like if it represents a game level, maybe I want a character to be able to traverse from one side to the other one, or that I want it to present a certain amount of difficulty to the player as they go from one side to the other one. And some of those things, such as uh, expressing traversability or some models of what is the difficulty during traversability and so on, I might know how to express those more naturally in in a logic programming-like setup, but I need to somehow bridge mm-hmm. that to the world of fancy pixels that look like my artist-provided reference levels.
0: Do you want to go directly from sort of a, I don't know, a logical representation of what things there should be on the level to the pixel-perfect end result? Or do you want to kind of generate a blocky visualization in between? I, I would like to, then... to
1: make that that blocky intermediate visualization where... Uh, Imagine from a high-resolution image, I want to go to a low-resolution grid of symbolic information that describes what is happening at each grid location, like is this air or ground? Uh, uh, is there a power up here? Is there an enemy mm-hmm. here? Is it, uh, is it red or blue? Like very discrete properties that, that might have gameplay meaning. I want some way Wait, of,
0: And then you hand it off.
1: Yeah, I, I want a there. bi-directional conversion between symbolic grids and detailed pixels um, and machine learning is one way to get that bi-directional mapping. Um, I, maybe I only want one direction of the mapping for generation purposes, but for either debugging visualization or to help with knowledge engineering, it'd be really nice if it was a bi-directional thing that if I could take any image, convert it to its symbolic form, check constraints on it, and then maybe using symbolic techniques such as ASP to generate a new grid of symbols that can then be sort of rendered back to the pretty pixels again.
0: Mm-hmm. And that would be a place so, um, where I
1: where I don't know how to do that that style of project without sort of having knowledge of both the symbolic and the sub-symbolic or neural end of it.
0: Very interesting. So I think this is a good time to round off. Do you have anything you want to add or uh, anything else you want to mention about your current work? Anything? Um, well, Not so much current work, but I
1: wanted to mention a little bit about how I first discovered ASP because it's actually become... Re- relevant again in in just the last few days so to contextualize this i guess at the time of recording a paper from google DeepMind, which is a lab usually associated with do- doing deep learning style research came out recently uh, describing a system called the Perception engine uh and this system is to my knowledge built entirely on top of of answer set programming there's no deep learning stuff anywhere in it um and it's it's offered as a model of making sense of sequential sensory data in uh logical symbolic terms and that system that just came out a few days ago reminded me of how i first got introduced to asp and that was that maybe 2007 ish i was at a workshop called like the workshop on the automation of science or representation of knowledge in science automation systems i can't remember the exact name Um, But uh, a big part of the workshop was like, how do we get computers to form theories from experimental data? So uh, not like machine learning where we just want to predict the data really well, but we want symbolic uh, interpretable knowledge. And amongst the several talks there, there was one from a guy named Oliver Ray, who was at Bristol at the time. um, And he was describing a system that implemented inductive logic programming which was sort of learning symbolic rules from data. And I believe the system that he was describing was implemented in Prolog, but not ASP. But other people at this workshop were talking about ASP um, in a very positive way. So somehow my very first introduction to ASP was me getting it mixed up with inductive logic programming, this kind of mode of (laughs) learning from data. And so this DeepMind paper that came out very recently is exactly that sort of learning knowledge from data and um and sort of coming full circle uh, a, a decade later where those ideas are are fresh again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, how nice. I had I hadn't seen that paper yet so I will uh, go straight from this conversation and look that up. If people want to check in on what you're doing uh, where do you propose that they Oh,
1: where do I propose it? they find it? Um uh, I don't, my, my website, adamsmith.as, has like links to all my papers, although other aspects of the webpage have not been updated in several years. I'd say most of my most recent work doesn't use ASP, but I want to sort of have it play a bigger role in the future. Um, if people want to get introduced to like how ASP would be taught at a university, um, I taught a class called Applied ASP a few years ago. So if people search for Applied ASP UC Santa Cruz, you'll be able to find um, like the lecture slides, programming assignments, uh, reading assignments from that class. Uh, unfortunately, the slides don't come with all of the sort of talking part over the top or the interesting discussions that we had or any of the student projects that came out at the end of the quarter. Um, But it does give some view of the sort of software engineering aspects of ASP of like, once you want to write a program that's more than 30 lines long, how do you you profile it? How do you test it? How do you deploy it? And so on.
0: Yeah. And I want to say one more time, if you ever find time to write down some more of your hard-earned, expertise about how to uh, write more complex and longer ASP pro- uh, programs I'm sure many uh, of the listeners here would be interested yeah
1: and I'd say that the, the so, best way to get the knowledge out of, out of me would be to uh, if people want to collaborate with me and want to get access to the knowledge um, you might end up being co-author on some sort of <laughs> document that describes this stuff because I always want to do it in the context of uh, an applied real world project where there's details that we, that we have to get right uh, to motivate everything.
0: Well, we will end on that note, on that invitation. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Adam. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Yeah,
1: thanks, Felix, for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to this conversation with Adam Smith. If you paid close attention, you will have noticed that Adam refers to the current year as 2021, which is when the interview was recorded three years ago. But uh, unlike a lot of things in tech, logic programming is not subject to a lot of hype and trends, and I don't think anything said in our conversation has gone out of date. I usually pay special attention to lessons that regular programmers, like myself, can draw from logic programming and apply in our everyday work, even if we don't convince our whole company to rewrite the entire codebase in Prolog or ASP. The reason I do this is not because I don't think logic programming is exciting enough on its own, but because I think it's important to find ways for logic programming to gradually prove its value and have an impact on the software industry. And I think there is plenty to take away from this episode in that respect. In particular, I think there is a lot to learn from the discussion about elaboration tolerance and knowledge representation. In typical enterprise software, there is a lot of talk about domain knowledge and business logic, and these are really very much the same thing as knowledge representation, uh, just coming in from a slightly different angle. People often discuss how to make business logic robust, understandable, and modular, and this is the whole point of non-monotonic reasoning formalisms like ASP, at least uh, a big part of the point. It's really interesting how Adam mentioned in one of his projects uh, that probably a loop to just score solutions and select the best ones, uh, or the best one, might have worked as well as ASP, but using ASP let them express the problem in a way that made it easy for them, the humans, to modify and tweak the rules. The idea of elaboration tolerance was first put forth by John McCarthy like so many other ideas, I have put a link to the paper in uh, the show notes, and uh, right in the introduction, uh, McCarthy writes, a formalism is elaboration tolerant to the extent that it is convenient to modify a set of facts expressed in the formalism to take into account new phenomena or changed circumstances pretty basic. I think we can all agree that this is relevant to all areas of software development, and it describes what most programmers are trying to achieve every day. We should really ask ourselves to what extent our systems are elaboration-tolerant. Adam made clear that ASP is not a silver bullet, but I would wager that we as an industry do have a lot to gain from finding ways to make use of ASP or logic programming in general. Maybe not to replace, but to augment other languages and technologies. If you want to experiment a bit with ASP, you can try the Klingo implementation, which Adam mentioned several times, right from your browser on the Potasco site. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. As always, any feedback, praise, or criticism is more than welcome. The way to contact me these days is by sending an email. Remember those? to Felix at thesearch.space. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to our website, thesearch.space, and click the link to buy me a coffee. Many, many thanks to everyone who bought me cups of coffee in the intervening two years since the last episode last but not least if you like the podcast please share it with your network and if you really love it please give it five stars or a review on itunes or any other place you listen so that you can help other people find it the music is phase one by silo zyko used under creative commons license see you soon